0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscal All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Uh, I know this is going to be coming out on Monday, but happy Father's Day to all of the fathers who happen to be listening. I know I'm a little late because we're recording this on Sunday, but you're not going to get it until the day after. Uh, also, I want to give a special shout out to Byron Mobley. Now, we've talked about Byron before. He is one of our Law 140 lovers. He helps keep... The uh, the podcast going. He has asked us questions for the What the Fisk segments when we needed them. He's helped me out when I did that Law 140 on immigration. He's an all around great guy. We rely on him and appreciate him immensely. But I also wanted to note that he's let his daughter listen to this podcast as well, which normally I, I would discourage given my over the top use of profanity. But apparently, his daughter Charlotte is a fan of the podcast also. And in addition to that, she's even become one of our patrons as well. So, welcome, Charlotte, and thank you for joining our community here. And, uh, you know, I made note on Twitter that if I ever get in trouble for contributing to the delinquency of a minor because someone has encouraged them to listen to this podcast, and we find out, you know, months down the line that Charlotte's cussing up a storm somewhere, uh, I was going to rely on Byron's tweets telling me that it was okay. In my defense to ensure that I am not prosecuted. And folks, that is actually going to be the topic for today's podcast. You might notice from the title that we are not having a normal Fiscamal. We are only doing a Law 140. And the reason for that is that I just have not had the time to do the criminal justice fuckery outline yet. If you follow me on Twitter, you've probably seen me mention at least once or twice uh, Marissa, who is the other attorney who works with me out of our Durham office for my day job. And she has been my right hand for the better part of three years now. But one of the things she has always wanted to do ever since she was in law school was become a law professor. And recently, a friend of mine recommended that I apply for a job uh, to teach, and I passed it on to her, encouraged her to apply. She did. She got an interview. She's amazing. So, of course, they hired her. So good news is she's now a law professor. I'm very happy for her. Uh, Bad news is I'm trying to make do as a true solo once again. I am by myself. And I got a trial coming up on Wednesday and just have not had the time to piece together the criminal justice fuckery. But that is okay because I have had this law 140 queued up in advance and it's going to be a good one. I hope you're going to like it and we're going to get into it before we do that, though. I do have one podcast note uh, someone brought up on Twitter and I should have put their uh, username in the outline, but I didn't. So I know this person knows who they are. So thank you to them. Uh, Someone noted that our earlier episodes had dropped off of the iTunes store, and it's because our RSS feed was capped at 50 entries. The standard is 10. I had bumped it up to 25 and then bumped it up to 50, thinking that that was a very long time down the road. You're currently listening to episode 70, so it's really not. So I've bumped it up to 100, but what happened was that when the original you know, the first 20-something episodes, however many there were, uh, ended up back on the Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and everywhere else, it got re-downloaded to people's devices as if you had never heard them before. And, you know, I looked at our statistics on Blueberry, and I saw we had this huge jump in downloads last Monday, and I thought, oh, wow, this is awesome. People are really tuning in. Uh, Well, I found out it's because, like, 50 of y'all got all of our earlier stuff Um, So I apologize for that. I did not mean to clog your devices with episodes from a year ago that you've already listened to. So that's the only podcast note I've got. If you have not already, please make sure to join the conversation online. We are at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a comment, you can do that on FiskeMall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our patrons, the people that help keep this show running, help make sure I can pay Mike the Sound Guy and cover our web costs and everything else, uh, Blueberry, the fancy statistics, that sort of thing, you can do that on Patreon.com slash Fisk. That is Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. If you become one of our friends of the Fisk, I think it's $7 a month. We do have some goodies for you, including some old episodes, uh, at least two of which I'm going to reference in this podcast because all this stuff kind of builds off each other, when we're talking about the amenability to indictment of a sitting United States president. Now, the reason this has come up is, of course, the Trump crime family continues to engage in new crimes every day. And we have all this stuff with Mueller and the Russian indictment and everything else. But out of New York this past week, the New York Attorney General filed a civil suit against the Trump Foundation. Trying to have it dissolved, and I'm not going to go into too much detail with that. I'll give you a link in the show notes as far as what it's about. But one of the things they allege is that the Trump Foundation was used to benefit the Trumps personally and to benefit Trump's presidential campaign. Uh, so, for example, they used foundation money. In order to pay off legal settlements relating to Mar-a-Lago and in the exhibits to the suit is actually a note written by President Trump himself uh, indicating that that particular donation to a charity was to satisfy a legal claim against the Trump organization, not the Trump Foundation, the Trump organization, the business that Trump runs. Uh, There's another spot where Corey Lewandowski, when he was acting as the campaign manager, sent an email to the foundation wanting to know when they can get a check to donate to a veterans group, trying to coordinate it to benefit the campaign Uh, The Trump kids apparently were on the board of directors but never actually engaged in any kind of oversight. It's a super lengthy complaint. The exhibits are fascinating. The complaint is fascinating. I'll give you a link to it in the show notes. encourage you to read it. But among the questions was why was this done civilly as opposed to a criminal complaint when when you read the the text of the lawsuit – it pretty much says, point blank, that crimes were committed. It says that verbatim. Uh, And the short answer to that is, I don't know. I mean, I don't know why the New York Attorney General chose this particular path. Uh, Someone had mentioned that it's one of the only ways to dissolve an organization, which is the central thrust of the civil suit, is having the Trump Foundation dissolved. Um, But one of the key points that, so, you know, it's Twitter, so things spiral off into various tangents. One of the tangents was, can Donald Trump be indicted while he is in office, while he is a sitting president. And we've had this debate before about the scope of executive immunities, the scope of executive powers. This comes up in the discussion about whether or not the president can pardon himself. I've said before that I think he can, if you just look at the text of the Constitution. But we're going to look specifically on the indictability of a sitting president, and whether or not that can happen. A spoiler, I'm going to say the answer is no. But you don't have to take my word for it. I'm going to give you a boatload of legal references as to why that's the case. So when you see people commenting in the press, otherwise, you know to be skeptical, and you know why you should be skeptical. But let's start at the beginning. So what is an indictment? So you have to keep in mind that an indictment is really just a formal accusation against somebody that they're suspected of having committed a crime. So this is something that gets filed after a grand jury has investigated and come to its conclusion. So it's usually after a grand jury but before an arrest most of the time. Now, what is all what, you know? what does a grand jury do and everything else? We've already covered that. Go back to episode 20, which is a public episode. Our Law 140 on that talks about grand juries and talks about infamous crimes because you'll note in the Fifth Amendment – to the United States Constitution. Uh, It says, quote, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. So in that episode, we talk about grand juries, investigatory grand juries, and how they work, the process for getting a grand jury indictment, so on and so forth. So go back to episode 20 and listen to that Law 140 part. So the question is, now that we know what an indictment is, we know how it works, why does it matter? whether or not a president can be indicted. And the the I couldn't find an audio clip of it, but the text of it is great. This is from Neil Katyal, uh, who used to be the acting solicitor general under Obama, and he was interviewed by CBS News. And here's a quote. He says, quote, "...the basic point is that prosecutors should not be able to tie up the work of a president." Imagine, for example, that a South Carolina prosecutor had tried to indict Abraham Lincoln in 1864. It would allow a prosecutor from one state to undermine the national will. But federal prosecutors are not amenable to quite the same criticism. So that's the key point of it. But we're going to go through a whole bunch of other stuff on how we get there. But that's why it matters. So, as far as that other stuff, remember, the second rule of Fisk, when you're dealing with these types of questions, you have to start at the source. You have to look at the source text. And there are a few spots in the Constitution that matter. We're going to cover the Constitution. We're going to talk about the Federalist Papers. We're going to talk about the Office of Legal Counsel. But let's start with the Constitutional snippets. And I'm going to read you a lot of text because there's a lot of stuff here that matters. The first part, is in Article 1, Section 3. Now, Article 1 covers the powers of Congress, and Section 3 talks about the powers of the Senate specifically. And what this particular section says is, quote, The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside. And no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law." So this is called the Impeachment Judgment Clause, and what you'll notice is that it really lays out a temporal order to things. You're impeached, you're removed, and then at that point, you're subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Now, that's one piece of it. That on its own doesn't mean a whole lot, because inferior executive branch officers uh, get removed and, and prosecuted all the time before their impeachment, so that doesn't really satisfy things. It just kind of lays out an initial uh, order for stuff. You also have to go into Article 2, which lays out the powers of the executive branch and the president specifically. And I'm going to read you all of Section 2 and all of Section 3 because there are different spots in here that matter but they're buried amid other stuff that doesn't matter as much. So I'm just going to read you the whole thing and try and give some inflection with my voice to point out the stuff that is particularly relevant. Uh, article 2, Section 2, says, "Quote: The President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. He may require the opinion in writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective offices, and he shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States except in cases of impeachment." Those last few words matter. So the president's pardon power is really unlimited. The only two limits is that it applies only to offenses against the United States and cases of impeachment. Remember that for later. Uh, It continues, he shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provided two-thirds of the senators present concur, and he shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law. But the Congress may, by law, vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. So that basically means that if Congress chooses, they can pass legislation designating who gets to appoint certain officials. And that's going to matter later on as we talk about special counsel versus independent counsel. So keep that part in mind. It continues, quote, The president shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next session. And then goes on to Section 3. And it says, "...he shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. He may, on extraordinary occasions, convene both houses or either of them, and in case of disagreement between them with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper." He shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. He shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed and shall commission all the officers of the United States. That clause, shall take care the laws be faithfully executed, is vital. That is a tremendously important snippet of constitutional text. All right, so you take all that stuff. You have the order of impeachment removal prosecution laid out in Article 1. Uh, the part about Article 2 where he's got near unlimited pardon powers, the part where Congress can choose by law to vest the appointment of certain officials in other entities beyond the president, and the obligation to take care of the laws to be faithfully executed. Those are the four parts that really are key to what we're going to talk about here. But in addition to that, you also, when we're trying to figure out what the Constitution means— one of the primary sources, aside from the text itself and a dictionary, is the Federalist Papers. Because those were documents written to basically lobby for the ratification of the Constitution. So it lays out in lengthy detail all of the different parts of it. And Alexander Hamilton, in particular, wrote most of the Federalist Papers. And in Federalist 65, 69, and 77... He's talked about the nature of impeachment and the order that things go. What you find is that 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 temporal order laid out in Article One isn't by accident. They did it that way on purpose. so for example, in federalist sixty nine Hamilton talks about the nature of the president. They called it the chief magistrate, and it's a it basically what he does is he does a compare and contrast of the proposed president that, remember, doesn't exist yet, versus the King of England on one hand, and then the governor of New York on the other. And essentially what you find is that the King of England is absolutely immune from any wrongdoing at all whatsoever. The divine right of kings, the king is absolute. But then you have the governor of New York, who could theoretically be prosecuted, but can pardon everyone for state offenses, plus pardon impeachments and everything else. So in Federalist 69, I'm going to give you a link to all of these because they're long, but I I love them. Like, they're tough to read because back then uh, they used a lot of commas. So you'd have a single sentence that's like two paragraphs long. But it's just so fucking fascinating to me, the thought that went into architecting this new government from scratch. Like, I love constitutional law for this very reason because this stuff is just so interesting. Uh, But Hamilton writes in Federalist 69, he says, quote, the president of the United States... "...would be liable to be impeached, tried, and, upon conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors, removed from office, and would afterwards be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law. The person of the King of Great Britain is sacred and inviolable. There is no constitutional tribunal to which he is amenable, no punishments to which he can be subjected without involving the crisis of a national revolution." in this delicate and important circumstance of personal responsibility the president of confederated america would stand upon no better ground than a governor of new york and upon worse ground than the governors of maryland and delaware you see that reference to the fact that it's only after you've been removed from office that you would afterwards afterwards be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law and you kind of see this in several other papers as well so in federalist 65 Hamilton is writing about the powers of the Senate, and one of the things that he talks about is why the Senate is trying impeachments instead of the Supreme Court. He writes, quote, These considerations seem alone sufficient to authorize a conclusion that the Supreme Court would have been an improper substitute for the Senate as a court of impeachments. There remains a further consideration which will not a little strengthen this conclusion. It is this... The punishment, which may be the consequence of conviction upon impeachment, is not to terminate the chastisement of the offender. After having been sentenced to a perpetual ostracism from the esteem and confidence and honors and emoluments of his country, he will still be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law. And I'm actually going to give you a sidebar from the Federalist Papers. Governor Morris who his name was Governor Governor, he was not a, a title. he was not a governor in political office. His name was Governor Moores. Uh, he was one of the people at the Constitutional convention that wrote the Constitution, and one of the things that he said at the convention, was, quote, a conclusive reason for making the Senate, instead of the Supreme Court, the judge of impeachments, was that the latter was to try the president after the trial of the impeachment. So after he's been impeached and removed, the Supreme Court would handle the criminal prosecution. Uh, So Alexander Hamilton continues in Federalist 77. He's back to talking about the executive branch and talking about the structure of it. He says, quote, We have now completed a survey of the structure and powers of the executive department, which I have endeavored to show combines, as far as Republican principles will admit, all the requisites to energy. The remaining inquiry is does it also combine the requisites to safety? In a Republican sense, a due dependence on the people, a due responsibility. The answer to this question has been anticipated in the investigation of its other characteristics and is satisfactorily deducible from these circumstances, from the election of the president once in four years by persons immediately chosen by the people for that purpose. That's the Electoral College, by the way, and from his being at all times liable to impeachment, trial Dismission from office, incapacity to serve in any other, and to forfeiture of life and estate by subsequent prosecution and the common course of law. That's subsequent prosecution. So, again, the notion is that you can't be indicted while you're in office, but the minute you're gone, it's a free for all. So, that kind of lays out the textual basis of it. And one of the other reasons why you can't indict a president while he's in office, we mentioned it a little bit back, is that a president can pardon himself. So I'm not going to go into too much detail about it. Uh, If you listen to episode 18, that's one of the Patreon-only exclusives, we talk about the case law and the Federalist Papers again and kind of the basis for this belief that the president can pardon himself. But one of the reasons why is a canon of construction, and I'm going to do a sidebar. I promise you I'm not trying to deliberately pub all the Patreon-only exclusives, but episode 13, also only on Patreon, we go over canons of construction. Uh, But one key one that's existed since the era of English common law is Expressio Unius Est Exclusio Alterius. It is Latin, and it says, "...the express mention of one thing excludes all others." The pardon powers are limited within the text of Article 2. They're limited to federal crimes, not state crimes, and they do not include impeachment. By referencing those two things, it excludes everything else. It excludes limits on what can be pardoned and who can be pardoned. So if a president can pardon himself, it makes the process of prosecuting him futile. Because while he's in office, he has the pardon power. If you indict him and prosecute him, he just pardons himself and calls it a day. So the other key piece is that it brings up federalism concerns. So that was the the key point of Neil Katyal's quote earlier on. Can you imagine if a South Carolina prosecutor tried to uh, indict Abraham Lincoln? And there are two legal documents that go over this aspect of it. So you have in the executive branch under the Department of Justice this place called the Office of Legal Counsel. And they are basically the office that provides legal opinions to the entire executive branch. All executive branch officials are bound by what they provide as legal guidance until either Congress or the court says otherwise. And there are two separate OLC opinions, one in 1973 and one in 2000 that addressed whether or not the president could be indicted while he was in office. So in 1973, uh, you got to keep in mind this is in the midst of Watergate stuff. Uh, Spiro Agnew has uh, resigned because he'd been accepting kickbacks while he was vice president. He pled guilty, uh, ended up being convicted. But that was part of a plea that included his resignation. So this was all kind of happening at the same time. Uh, And the key point that the memo mentioned is that indicting a president... Uh, would, quote, hamstring the operation of the whole governmental apparatus, both in foreign and domestic affairs, basically making it so that the president could not take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Uh, So that became the key point of arguing that the president could not be indicted while he's in office. So the OLC looks at the Federalist Papers, they look at that constitutional text that I just gave you, and they consider whether all federal officials in the executive branch had that type of immunity, whether it's only the officers that are expressly mentioned within Article II itself, which would be the president and the vice president, or if it's just the president only because he is the head of the executive department. And what they find is that the executive, the president of the United States, is immune from indictment while he's in office, but that does not apply to anyone else. So then fast forward to 2000, Bill Clinton has been impeached for obstruction of justice. He's acquitted by the Senate. And the Office of Legal Counsel again looks at the issue of whether or not the president can be indicted while he's still in office. But what they do is that they're tasked specifically with looking at the 1973 memo, deciding if it was accurate – and taking into account subsequent judicial decisions that we're gonna talk about in a minute, but you have several key court cases United States versus Nixon, Nixon versus Fitzgerald, and Clinton versus Jones, where the Supreme Court has opined about the scope of executive powers and they need to take all of that into account. And what you find is in this same memo, They reach the same conclusions as they do in 1973. There's nothing in the Supreme Court uh, opinions that changes the outcome. And the key quote there is, quote, the indictment or criminal prosecution of a sitting president would unconstitutionally undermine the capacity of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned functions, ensuring that the laws would be faithfully executed. That's my adding it there in parentheses. So we're going to give you links to both of these OLC memos in the show notes. The uh, the 1973 one I found hosted by the Federation of American Scientists. And then the 2001 is hosted by the Department of Justice itself. We're going to give you links to both of them. I want you to read both of them because I think they're very fascinating source documents. Uh, but the key point is... Because of the fact the president is the head of the executive and has to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, there are limits under separation of powers doctrines to what can be done by other branches to impose upon him, such as the judicial branch for a criminal trial. Now, what that entails has been the subject of a few different Supreme Court decisions since the Nixon era. So we've talked before About United States versus Nixon. This is not Nixon versus United States. So, Nixon versus US was a Supreme Court case filed by a judge who was not related to the president, who had been impeached and removed from office. And the question was whether or not that impeachment was proper. That's a separate case. United States versus Nixon was trying to get the White House tapes as part of the Watergate prosecutions. And the president said that under executive privilege, he can mark these things as classified and not have to turn them over. And of course, he was trying to do that because he didn't want to have what he said on the tapes to be publicly released. Well, the Supreme Court rejected that argument. This was a 1974 decision. It was unanimous, 8 to 0. Justice Rehnquist had just been appointed and had recused himself from consideration because he had been involved as the Solicitor General or Deputy Attorney General. I think that's his exact position. Basically, he helped Nixon make stuff go away. That's the gist of it. But he had a conflict, so he recused himself. So the court has gone through an analysis of the benefits to the executive in being allowed to just say things are confidential under executive privilege. And then they pick up from here saying, quote, on the other hand, the allowance of the privilege to withhold evidence that is demonstrably relevant in a criminal trial would cut deeply into the guarantee of due process of law and gravely impair the basic function of the court. A president's acknowledged need for confidentiality in the communications of his office is general in nature. Whereas the constitutional need for production of relevant evidence in a criminal proceeding is specific and central to the fair adjudication of a particular criminal case in the administration of justice. Without access to specific facts, a criminal prosecution may be totally frustrated. The president's broad interest in confidentiality of communications will not be vitiated by disclosure of a limited number of conversations preliminarily shown to have some bearing on the pending criminal cases." We conclude that when the ground for asserting privilege as to subpoenaed materials sought for use in a criminal trial is based only on the generalized interest in confidentiality, it cannot prevail over the fundamental demands of due process of law in the fair administration of criminal justice. The generalized assertion of privilege must yield to the demonstrated specific need for evidence in a pending criminal trial. So the court notes elsewhere in the opinion that if it's something involving military or diplomatic stuff, that theoretically that could be, you know, prevented from being disclosed to the judicial branch outright. Uh, And they also note that a review by a judge in camera. Now, I want to specify in camera means in a chamber in Latin. So sometimes mean in chambers review. There's not actually a camera looking over the judge as he's reviewing documents. Uh, But in camera review by a judge would help protect the confidentiality concerns. The president would turn them over to the judge. The judge would review them and weigh how serious they are and then decide whether or not they get disclosed to the prosecutor or to the defense to aid in the criminal trial. The key point about U.S. v. Nixon is that a lot of lesser folks had already been indicted. So Nixon couldn't withhold the tapes under executive privilege because that would violate separation of powers in the direction of the judiciary. So it's one thing to say, I'm going to hold on to these documents and you can't infringe on my powers to get them. If he had done that, it would have infringed on the judicial powers in the process. There was kind of a balance there as far as how that went down. So, of course, Nixon resigned because he was going to be impeached and removed. He was not prosecuted. Ford gave him a full pardon. And as part of Ford's presidency... When he was in California at a particular point in time, uh, a woman tried to have him assassinated. She tried to shoot a gun at him. It didn't work, obviously, because he still served out his term. But she was prosecuted in a case called United States versus Fromm. And one of the key points in that case was whether or not she was insane. I mean, that's the gist of it. And Ford had prepared an affidavit because he had been called to testify as a witness. Said, hey, I'm president. I'm not testifying prepared an affidavit that said that he didn't hear the woman say anything, so he had no way of knowing whether or not she was nuts. All he heard was the gun click. Uh, Well, the judge in that particular case decided that 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 wasn't good enough, that an affidavit would not do. Uh, He could be deposed by the defense attorney as part of this woman's right to a fair trial and issued an order compelling President Ford to make himself available for a deposition at the White House at some period of time within the next 10 days, but it would be of his choosing. So the key point in that case is that it never made it past the U.S. District Court judge in California. This never went to the Supreme Court or anything else. Ford allowed himself to be deposed. Uh, We'll give you a link to his testimony. It's actually on YouTube if you want to see him testifying about the case. Uh, But you now have two different scenarios where the president's scope of uh, freedom to make take care that the laws be faithfully executed have been curtailed. In Nixon's case, it's to ensure that fair trials can take place against people who have already been indicted, who are lesser officials. In Ford's case, it's to do the same to ensure a fair trial for this woman out in California. Well, then you have consideration from some of the civil aspects to it, where the court has opined at length about the same type of stuff. You have Nixon versus Fitzgerald which was decided in 1982. So Reagan's already president at this point. This litigation had been going on for years, but this involved a U.S. Air Force analyst who had testified uh, during Lyndon Baines Johnson's uh, tenure, testified to Congress about cost overruns involving the C-5A transport plane, and then Nixon comes into office, they do a reorganization, this guy loses his job and he files suit claiming that he has unfairly been retaliated against. And the question that comes before the court is whether or not the president has absolute immunity from civil suit for official conduct. So we're not talking about qualified immunity that I've mentioned before, but actual absolute immunity cannot be sued in the first instance at all whatsoever with no kind of requirements that he you know, be acting beyond something or anything else. If he's acting in his official capacity, is he totally immune from suit? And the Supreme Court decides, yes, he is absolutely immune from civil suit for official conduct. And what they do is that in addition to opining about that, they also reference a key quote uh, from Justice Story, Which is, when we get to it, it's going to blow your mind. But this has actually been incorporated into a Supreme Court opinion. So it is the law as it exists right now. The court writes, quote, "...here a former president asserts his immunity from civil damages claims of two kinds. He stands named as a defendant in a direct action under the Constitution and in two statutory actions under federal laws of general applicability." In neither case has Congress taken express legislative action to subject the president to civil liability for his official acts. Applying the principles of our cases to claims of this kind, we hold that Petitioner, as a former president of the United States, is entitled to absolute immunity from damages liability predicated on his official acts. We consider this immunity a functionally mandated incident of the president's unique office— Rooted in the constitutional tradition of the separation of powers and supported by our history. Justice Story's analysis remains persuasive. And here they've put Justice Story's comments in a block quote that says, There are incidental powers belonging to the executive department which are necessarily implied from the nature of the functions which are confided to it. Among these must necessarily be included the power to perform them. The president cannot, therefore, be liable to arrest, imprisonment, or detention while he is in the discharge of the duties of his office. And for this purpose, his person must be deemed, in civil cases at least, to possess an official inviolability. Now that's a pretty hefty chunk of text Uh, to put in there, he cannot be liable to arrest, imprisonment, or detention. So, of course, the dissent raises an issue, says the president is above the law, as as, is want these days, as it was back then. So the Supreme Court majority continues, saying, quote, a rule of absolute immunity for the president will not leave the nation without sufficient protection against misconduct on the part of the chief executive. There remains the constitutional remedy of impeachment. In addition, there are formal and informal checks on presidential action that do not apply with equal force to other executive officials. The president is subjected to constant scrutiny by the press. Vigilant oversight by Congress also may serve to deter presidential abuses of office, as well as to make credible the threat of impeachment. Other incentives to avoid misconduct may include a desire to earn re-election the need to maintain prestige as an element of presidential influence and a president's traditional concern for his historical stature. The existence of alternative remedies and deterrence establishes that absolute immunity will not place the president, subquote, above the law. For the president, as for judges and prosecutors, absolute immunity merely precludes a particular private remedy for alleged misconduct in order to advance compelling public ends." that section there about the importance of congressional oversight and the press and everything else, uh, that's a big deal, too. So, of course, fast forward to 1997, you have the Clinton versus Jones case. Now, this involved Paula Jones, who worked for Bill Clinton when he was governor of Arkansas. She claims that he sexually harassed her, assaulted her, and everything else, filed a civil suit against him during his... uh, it was prior to re-election I think I think the suit was filed in 94. Do you remember? I don't know. I, I was I was in high school or just before high school. I don't remember the details of it. Okay, so neither Mike or I know when this particular suit was filed. I think it was 1994. So this was either just before the midterms. I, I seem to remember in my mind it being treated as a political stunt as opposed to a viable lawsuit. but don't quote me on that because that was you know more than 20 years ago, my brain only works but so well. But key point is this Clinton argued That this is the same type of thing As Nixon versus Fitzgerald That he's got this absolute immunity from civil suit And that they're, they can't do anything at all So Paula Jones has filed this case In U.S. District Court uh, The Office of General Counsel for the White House Filed the motion to dismiss the proceedings Under absolute immunity Or in the alternative Stay the proceedings until after Clinton left office And these all came to a head And before the Supreme Court. Now I'm going to specify the the Supreme Court opinion is long. Uh, It's an eight, well, I guess it's technically a nine to zero decision as far as the outcome. So the court ruled that the case could temporarily proceed in a limited fashion. Uh, Eight justices were in the minority, or the majority rather, and then Justice Breyer wrote a separate opinion that concurred in the outcome, but not necessarily the reasoning. Uh, But the key point that the court made was a few things. One, the, the opening paragraphs went to great lengths to talk about what they were not talking about. So the court says, quote, first, because the claim of immunity is asserted in a federal court and relies heavily on the doctrine of separation of powers that restrains each of the three branches of the federal government from encroaching on the domain of the other two, it is not necessary to consider or decide whether a comparable claim might succeed in a state tribunal. If this case were being heard in a state forum, instead of advancing a separation of powers argument, Petitioner would presumably rely on federalism and comedy concerns. That's C-O-M-I-T-Y. Not comedy, ha ha, but comedy. Uh, As well as the interest in protecting federal officials from possible local prejudice that underlies the authority to remove certain cases brought against federal officers from a state to a federal court. Whether those concerns would present a more compelling case for immunity is a question that is not before us. If you listened to the Canons of Construction episode, this is the doctrine of constitutional avoidance. If the court can avoid interpreting the Constitution at all, it will. And if it has to interpret the Constitution, it will interpret as little of it as possible. Because you don't want to make broad, sweeping, generalized claims about a case that aren't necessary. Because remember, the Supreme Court's power is only to decide cases and controversies. Anything that is kind of surplusage, extra stuff that is not necessary to resolve the case, uh, we call it obiter dictum, which is basically just mental masturbation in a nutshell. It's not binding legal authority. Uh, The court also continues, so they're not discussing whether or not this is a federalism issue. Uh, they also say, quote, "Second, our decision rejecting the immunity claim and allowing the case to proceed does not require us to confront the question whether a court may compel the attendance of the President at any specific time or place. We assume that the testimony of the President, both for discovery and for use at trial, may be taken at the White House, at a time that as a proper exercise of judicial discretion may stay such litigation until the president leaves office. Our review is confined to these issues. So basically they're saying that not only are we not talking about federalism, we're also not talking about a specific subpoena compelling the president's space, you know, dictating that he be in a given place at a given time, because again, theoretically that would encroach upon the separation of powers. Uh, The court continues, quote, because the supremacy clause makes federal law the supreme law of the land, any direct control by a state court over the president who has principal responsibility to ensure that those laws are faithfully executed may implicate concerns that are quite different from the interbranch separation of powers questions addressed here. So the court goes on. I'm not going to give you quotes from the opinion itself because it's kind of a mess as far as how it's written, but it's a long decision. And the key point is that the Supreme Court distinguishes what is happening in the Paula Jones case, which involves conduct before the president took office, what they label unofficial conduct, from the guy being fired in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, which was part of the official conduct of the office. The key point is you're still hashing out these contours of what separations of powers mean. You know, how much can the judicial branch encroach upon the executive branch? Because the key point is, even though Robert Mueller is a special counsel, he is part of the executive branch, the entire process of starting the criminal prosecution invokes the courts. So there's going to be a judicial piece to this as well. But the key point that the Supreme Court reaches in Clinton versus Jones is that the Constitution does not prohibit that suit from going forward. But if Congress wanted to add additional protections for the president, they could do that on their own. So the key point in all of this, that's kind of all of this is historical background. I'm giving you kind of the lay of the land for what things are. But the key point that matters is these OLC opinions that we talked about, because the reality is they are binding on judicial officials. They're not necessarily binding on the president because the president is the head of the executive branch. He can do what he wants uh, within certain limits established by Congress, of course, and the Supreme Court. But they are binding on all inferior officers of the executive branch, and Mueller is one of those. And the reason why is the distinction between a special counsel and an independent counsel. They're different things. So special counsels have been around since the beginning of the country. You know, they're routinely appointed by the attorney general and their job is to kind of ferret out corruption. So if you uh, learned about the Teapot Dome scandal in the 1920s, you should have learned that in your uh, civics classes. Basically, under President Harding's administration, people were accepting bribes. Uh, In the 1950s, there were a bunch of tax scandals involving the IRS. Those types of things were investigated by special counsels. So you have the president. The president appoints the attorney general with the advice and consent of the Senate. And then by statute, the attorney general appoints a special counsel for certain types of cases that are specified in law. So basically something where there's going to be a conflict of interest if the attorney general handled it himself, or there's something that's kind of major. An independent counsel is an entirely different beast that does not actually exist anymore. So the independent counsel law was created by Congress after Watergate because you'd had what's called the Saturday Night Massacre. And if you're not familiar with this, basically this was a whole bunch of people resigning all at the same time on a Saturday night. So you had this special counsel, a guy named Archibald Cox, and Nixon wanted him fired told the attorney general, uh, a guy named Elliot Richardson, you have to fire Cox. And Richardson refused and resigned rather than actually fire the guy. So then you have the deputy attorney general, a guy named William Ruckelshaus, or however the hell you pronounce his name. Uh, so he now becomes kind of the acting AG. Nixon then orders him, you must fire Archibald Cox. And Ruckelshaus says no. He resigns. So then you have uh, Solicitor General Robert Bork, who is the third in line as far as, uh, you know, most senior official, Bork thinks about resigning, but then says, eh, fuck it, okay. And he's the one that ultimately fires the guy. So those pair of resignations with uh, Richardson and Ruckelshaus, and then the termination of Cox, those three people now are no longer in the government, that becomes coined as the Saturday Night Massacre, which remains one of the most defining things of Nixon's presidency. Well, as part of Congress being supremely pissed about how all of this stuff went down, they enact a bunch of ethics reforms for the government that finally get passed and signed by President Carter. So we're years down the line. We're now in 1978, but Watergate is still kind of looming large over everyone's mind. And as part of this new law, there's this thing called an independent council that gets created. And this is now outside of the executive branch. So all special counsels, they're fully within the executive branch. The president, through the attorney general, controls them exclusively. An independent counsel is a different creature. It changes the structure of the government because now Congress has enacted the statute. The president has acceded to it with his signature. And the way it works is that the attorney general would then make a recommendation to a three judge panel in DC. The judges would pick the prosecutor, and that prosecutor would be able to do really whatever he wants within the context of what the judges assign him and could not be removed from office by the president. You would have to go back to the court to have this guy removed. So he is a hybrid creature of sorts between the executive and the legislative, or executive and the judicial branch. And this is something that a lot of people on both sides of the political divide have been leery of because having a runaway independent council could theoretically be problematic. There's a lot of references. And If y'all get bored, you could go Google this stuff because a lot of old news stories have been put online, especially for like the New York Times and CBS and everything else. So you can see the writings from back in 1978 when Jimmy Carter signed this. Uh, But the gist of it is that Jimmy Carter actually was one of the first people investigated as part of it. Someone looked into um, his peanut farms and whether or not he was violating something. Uh, he he was cleared of wrongdoing. Jimmy Carter, whether you agree or disagree with his politics, was an honest person as far as his business dealings went. Uh, but it had a five-year sunset. The Independent council law, so it came up for a renewal in 1983. Uh, President Reagan signed the renewal that was passed by Congress, and then in uh, he also got renewed again in I want to say 88. Don't quote me on the particular timeline. I did not put all this in the outline. I'm kind of going by memory from what I learned in high school uh, AP U.S. government class. Uh, But basically, in 1988, there was a Supreme Court case, Morrison versus Olson, uh, where an independent counselor was trying to prosecute one of Reagan's advisors, and the objection to the indictment was that the law itself was unconstitutional. So if the independent counsel did not constitutionally exist the indictment could not be brought, and I'm not going to give you any. I'll give you the link to the Supreme Court opinion. Not going to go into it in much detail, but the gist of it was that the Supreme Court decided that it was a valid exercise of the law. It didn't violate separation of powers or anything else. Congress enacted it, the President signed it, uh, and it was you know it was a it was an acceptable thing under the Constitution. Whether it was good or bad it was a determination for Congress to make, but it was allowed. So eventually, the law lapsed. In 1992 Finally expired Was not coming back Uh, But then President Clinton In 1994 As part of the Midterm re-election strategy uh, Asked for it Said it's a good idea Let's go ahead And bring it back So Congress enacted A new independent Council statute Clinton became The first president Since Carter uh, To think it was A good thing And signed it And that's how Ken Starr got appointed So he was the guy who started investigating, um, was it Whitewater? I don't remember all the Clinton scandals. But basically, dude went went buck wild and investigated the Clintons up, down, and through. uh, And basically investigating them for pretty much the entire batch of Clinton's second term, if I remember correctly. Uh, So long story short, that's part of what led to the impeachment of Clinton was a videotaped deposition. Uh, was, it wasn't a deposition, it was an interview. That's how they phrased it, an interview with Ken Starr, uh, where Starr was trying to figure out what was going on, and Clinton lied under oath, committed perjury. That led to the impeachment charge. Uh, of course, was acquitted by the Senate, got reelected in 96. So the five-year sunset on the independent counsel provision uh, expired in 99. So the law went away. And then that became – so what was at the point the office of the independent counsel became the office of the special counsel. It's now an official standalone office within the Department of Justice, separate from any particular special counsel. It's now an institutional thing that exists under the DOJ and under the attorney general. So the key point is there's the distinction between an independent counsel that exists outside the executive branch – And the special counsels that are fully within the executive branch, they're within the DOJ, the Office of Legal Counsel does those opinions for the entire executive branch. So Bob Mueller is bound by it regardless of whatever it is that he wants to do, separate from whatever the Supreme Court ultimately decides or whatever Congress tries to enact until either of those things happen. Bob Mueller is bound by these OLC memos from 1973 and 2000. Now, if OLC comes out with a new memo and says, yep, sure, you can indict a president whenever you want, that would change things. But for now, as a matter of procedure, he is bound by their conclusions, which are the president cannot be indicted while he is in office because he has to take care that the laws are faithfully executed and an indictment would unconstitutionally prevent him from doing so. So the reason why I've given you all of this stuff, the constitutional text, the Federalist Papers, the snippet from Governor Morris, the OLC memos, the Supreme Court opinions, is that we have this tendency in the Trump era. And we say we, I'm including me to an extent, we all kind of hope that the truth is going to come out. And we hope that President Trump will be held accountable for being an objectively terrible person. Like Aside from any other uh, collusion or whatever else got him into office, the dude is a trash president. He is among the worst that we've had in my lifetime. Uh, I'd put him definitely at the worst. I mean, I was born under Reagan. So Trump is definitely dead last during my lifetime. I suspect when all is said and done, 50 years from now, he'll be among the 10 worst ever in United States history. But we hope that the truth is going to come out. And a lot of that rests on Bob Mueller doing a full investigation that reaches conclusions that we like and Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general overseeing him choosing to make those uh, details public. But the fact is from the standpoint of our constitutional structure, Mueller is not going to do anything meaningful. He's not going to indict the president. Trump is not going to go to jail. The issue is going to be, is the Congress going to exercise oversight, whether that's impeaching and removing him or defunding his priorities until he starts acting more like a rational president or whatever else? Or is Trump going to continue fucking things up for another three years and then lose re-election or get re-elected? The only stuff that matters in all of this are political outcomes. Criminal stuff matters in a moral sense, but it is not going to affect one single iota what Donald Trump does. It's not. It's not going to influence whether or not he remains in office. It's not going to affect the decisions that he makes. It's not going to make a difference as to how objectively terrible a person and a president that he is. All that matters is politics. Is the pressure that the people, the voters, put on Congress critters to hold him accountable, or state level officials to help minimize the damage until we can vote him out of office. So pay attention to all this stuff because it's important. You know, again, I hope Mueller does a full investigation and we learn the truth about what actually happened. But this notion that his investigation is going to lead to some kind of of political consequences for the president. Uh, is is just not true. It's not. It's not going to happen. This notion that the president is going to be indicted and arrested and hauled out of the White House in handcuffs, I'm telling you now, and you can quote me, it's not going to happen. And I'm giving you all of this background so that you can know this is not just me saying things because of my political views. This is grounded in the law. The only stuff that is going to matter with Trump Is politics and political accountability. So I know it's kind of a depressing way to end a particular law 140, but I'd rather you go in with your eyes open, understanding what's going on than being misled by the Twitter charlatans out there. Uh, So take a look at the show notes. There will be links for all of this stuff uh, and read through it yourself. Come to your own conclusions if need be. But I'm telling you now, the president is not going to be indicted, it's not going to happen. Because the American president, while he's in office, is unindictable. So, folks, that's going to do it for this particular segment. I hope you enjoyed it, even if you don't particularly like the conclusion. I hope you enjoyed the information. And if you did, do us a favor and please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or a written review. Those are fabulous. They help people decide whether or not they want to listen to us, talk about us on Twitter. Uh, And on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy who is like looking like he wants to go to sleep because he spent an hour listening to me yammer on about law. There's not a single criminal justice story in here at all whatsoever. Uh, thank you for listening and we will talk to you later this week. Take care.